Welcome back to Talking Feds, a prosecutor's roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. I'm a former United States attorney and deputy assistant attorney general and a current Washington Post columnist. We're here in Washington, D.C. to tape a series of podcast episodes in front of a live audience. <laughs> At the... Live and robust at the Georgetown University Law Center, just blocks from the Capitol Dome. This is our third episode. All this week, we're talking about what happens after Mueller. What are the challenges and prospects for our democratic institutions? And we're going to be talking today about principles and outcomes and Republicans for the rule of law. So as the title suggests, today we're surveying the dangers and aberrations of Trump rule from the perhaps surprising vantage point of three prominent members of the president's own party. I would say strongly identified Republicans, dyed-in-the-wool Republicans, who nevertheless have found it important to uh, express some opposition to the administration's conduct, which I think makes their views particularly compelling and interesting and courageous. So those three Republicans. First, Bill Kristol. Bill Kristol is a political author and commentator. He's worked in many Republican administrations. He was the chief of staff to the U.S. Secretary of Education, William Bennett. He was chief of staff to the vice president, Dan Quayle. He founded the Weekly Standard, which had a great run as a sort of uh, conservative standard bearer until recently. He's been fluidly in and out of government as much as anyone uh, I know. So, Bill, first, thank you very much for being here. And you've gone back and forth. Do you miss being in government? Will you return to it? Do you have a sense of which you prefer? Or is it the ability to go back and forth that most um, attracts you? Thank you. It's good to be with you. I can't say the phone's ringing off the hook here in the last two years. <laughs> They're desperate to have me back in. Um, and actually, I, well, I haven't been in quite a while. I'm not quite an in-and-outer. I came here to Washington to work in government and did so in the Reagan and first Bush administrations and haven't been in since, though I've known people in the, um, I guess, both Republican and Democratic administrations, particularly the, the George W. Bush administration. No, I, I don't. Uh, one of the good pieces of advice I got after we lost in 1992, I remember talking to someone who had been older, who had been in earlier administrations, saying, you know, live your life, do what you want to do, try to make a contribution, but don't be one of those people always sitting around hoping that waiting your party's going to win, waiting for the call. It's a joy yeah. to drive yourself a little crazy. Uh, you, a, your party won't win all the time. That's certainly been true since <laughs> the end of the Cold War. And B, if it does, maybe it'll be someone you don't quite agree with, or you won't get the job offer you want, and then you'll be very frustrated and better to try to do something that you that you like to do. Well, and I have to say what you're doing, I mean, you, act, you are very much uh, in the the pilot of your own ship. Next, Peter Keisler, who's a partner at Sidley and Austin. He was the former assistant attorney general for the civil division and the former acting attorney general of the United States. He was he uh, ran the whole Justice Department at the very end of the uh, George W. Bush administration, correct? Not quite uh, the very end. It was in between 
the departure of Al Gonzalez and the confirmation of Mike Mukasey. I see. Where, what, what office did you Did you go up to the fifth floor? When or st- you stayed in the third floor you, when you were... You know, my original plan was to stay in the third floor, but there's a skiff for listeners who don't know what that means, uh, a secure facility in the whole oh. attorney general suite, which was, it was really necessary for me to you reside there. To and there. it would have inconvenienced a whole lot of people if I had decided to play it humble. Gotcha. And the curtains that you put in were just part of the, right. That's right. <laughs> um, third, uh, Carrie uh, Cordero. She is the Robert M. Gates Senior Fellow and General Counsel at the Center for a New American Security. She's the former counsel to the Assistant Attorney General for National Security and the former Senior Associate General Counsel at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Carrie, thanks for being here and welcome. What is the Center for a New American Security? So Center for New American Security is a bipartisan national security and defense think tank here in Washington. Um, we are a think tank primarily of futures versus former. So we have a really strong emphasis on growing the next generation of national security leadership. And uh, the organization was founded on the premise that there is a national security consensus that uh, individuals, regardless of which a party they have affiliated with in the past or future, can work together collaboratively on national security issues in the best interests of the country. So um, I've been there uh, throughout the course of the last year, just launched a new project yesterday. And so uh, it's, it's a terrific organization. All right. So let's dive into this topic. I want to talk a little bit about your decision to be sort of public and out front in in commentary on the Trump um, administration, but mainly move ahead to sort of present and future of assessing where we are and prospects for going forward. And let me try to set this up with a devil's advocate question. I'm always very interested when I meet friends or people I know who support the administration. And and here's an argument that I've heard uh, by some people I respect. And it it goes something like this. Yes, look, he is quite obviously is the president a deplorable, even wicked uh, man. And he, uh, in fact, is no friend of the Constitution or of democratic institutions. But You elect not just a person, but a party, a whole set of policy makers. I like Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. Maybe I like reduced taxes or whatever you think Trump stands for there. I think our democratic institutions will withstand his assault as, um, as much as he might like it otherwise. So I stay with my brand. That's not the choice you guys have made. Why not? What's wrong with that argument? I mean, I guess I would say there's a version of it that I somewhat sympathize with, which uh, is, you know, should people go to work in the Trump White House or the Trump administration? And I've been asked that question by lots of young people, especially looking for advice, but also had that conversation pretty seriously with peers, a few of them. And I've always been not dogmatic on that. That is, I, I've, defend, I've defended actually H.R. Uh, McMaster and Jim Mattis and a lot of other people working in the Trump administration for the country. He's president. He's likely to be, more likely than maybe even we thought six months ago, to be president for the entire four-year term. Some I, people have said uh, for five, six, or seven. Well, you know, whatever, he may yeah. not leave. Yeah, now, right. that they shouldn't help him do. <laughs> but he is carrying out the duties that he's constitutionally uh, required to carry out. You know, he is president of the United States. So having people there who 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 can help steer the ship a little better than it would otherwise be uh, steered, who can be uh, 
sort of put up barriers to certain things, I think is important. So I'm not sort of one of those. I have friends who do take the position that just no one should go near the place. No one should work for him. It's a, it will ruin your career. It's a corrupt enterprise. But I, I don't quite take that position. Having said that, I also think that whatever harms can be ameliorated should be and whatever good can be done should be. But at the end of the day, having a president who's so reckless uh, about constitutional norms, about the rule of law, who so disregards sort of basic democratic procedures and has the character and judgment he has is bad for the country. And I think fundamentally, therefore, I've always been I'm in opposition to him, uh, even though, as I say, I don't think you know, that everything the administration does, of course, is, is necessarily wrong. Carrie, what do you have thoughts on this? Well, my original objections to his candidacy and and so, have, so this goes back and before the election consisted yeah. throughout the presidency. All, all three of you were before the election. You yes, were, yeah. yes, yeah. Were, was was primarily based from a national security perspective. So having right. been a national security lawyer right. in government, um, nonpartisan at the time, so career civil service, I objected to his candidacy and continue to feel the same way throughout his presidency that he is personally unfit, his, his characteristics are unfit to be commander-in-chief, and that he uh, presents a vision of foreign policy that's not in America's security interests. Uh, so, not just a vision, right? For actual forays that probably, what would you say, have made us less safe? Well, I, I do think the country is less safe on a variety of fronts. So if you look at the administration of uh, the instruments of government, his refusal to fill important national security, homeland security, amazing, cabinet like, positions, acting, acting secretary of defense, acting secretary of homeland security, uh, revolving door in senior positions in the White House, no counterterrorism director in the White House, no cybersecurity director in the White House. I mean, I can go on and do, on. And do you take that to be strategic? So, so for people who don't know what that means, acting, there are some very high up acting officials in the administration, so they haven't gone through the sort of crucible and political check of confirmation, and they're just there, and they're also less secure in their own jobs. They could be yanked the next day. There are many more than in, than in past administrations. Is it your sense that it's sort of part of the chaos of the White House or a purposeful strategy, the profusion of acting people? My view is that it's intended to concentrate power in the White House mm-hmm. and in a small cadre of close advisors, including the president's family, which is completely inappropriate. In addition, on the national security front, he's really presented a view of national security and foreign, po- foreign policy, especially that is values-free. The refusal to acknowledge, for example, um, the Saudi complicitness in murdering Jamal Khashoggi, in the outreach to North Korea and the embrace of dictators and authoritarians. All of that was previewed on the campaign, and all of that he has continued to do throughout his presidency. I think all of that taken together, in addition to the um, poor management of the government, just sort of the not paying attention to the functionings of government, makes everyone less safe in a variety of fronts. Yeah, that's a really good point. You can see why that would be, in fact, much more important than a justice or outcomes. And I would also add to that, you're a much um, more sophisticated observer, but there's a there's also the sense of his erraticness and sort of ego in whimsical foreign policy decisions and then a desire to sort of stand behind them, all of which are inimical to, to basic um, national security goals, it seems to me. Well, it's, Im- it's impossible to discern what the strategy is <laughs> and whether or not the president and some of his close advisors are working in America's security interests. I mean, we're in a position now, and this was previewed that, that he was going to do this, and he has, where he has alienated at, uh, allies, traditional allies. Um, the rest of the world, the Western world, our allies are wondering what in the world is going on in the United States of America, and yet he hasn't articulated a vision that is 
in America's interests. Layer on top of that the willingness to receive foreign assistance in an election, and and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that, and you have somebody who uh, doesn't seem to be acting in America's interests on many fronts. Yeah, ironic for a guy who, you know, is make America great again. Peter, I wondered if you had thoughts about this position, which I'm sure many friends of yours must take sort of sotto voce. Well, yeah, and I think it's telling that you said sotto voce because... Imagine for a moment that someone said what you described in your first question on television. Someone went on television and was asked why they support the president. And they said, well, look, I I agree that he's dishonest and narcissistic, that he welcomed foreign interference in the election and then obstructed justice and then lied about the obstruction and has this strange affinity for authoritarian strongmen and separated children from their parents at the border. But I like the judges and the deregulation, and I think that outweighs the other stuff. They couldn't say that because it's so obviously not compelling. So what people do say is they minimize or rationalize or completely dismiss all those bad things. And that's how kind of the norms of politics and culture shift when you have a significant body of people who are thought leaders or political leaders who feel compelled in order to be taken seriously to treat things that we all used to think of as terrible and beyond the pale as if they're kind of within the range of toleration. Peter used the word rationalize, and we haven't discussed this before, but I I absolutely agree with that and want to just uh, emphasize that point a minute. I knew many, many people early on who did say, what you said, Harry, at the beginning, look, he's a jerk and he's going to screw up a million things and the foreign policy stuff's bad, but maybe we'll get people in there who could help. And I, if I have good relations with him, I could even help get people in there who will be better, like I'm out of Sir McMaster and, and others, you know, Gary Cohn and the lawyers can go in and maybe prevent him from obstructing justice and so forth. Uh-huh. And what struck me, has struck me so much over the last couple of years is the process of rationalization. Is people leave aside people on TV, it's very hard for people to hold that position. It's a hard psychological thing to tell yourself over and over. He's really bad, but a little bit the lesser of two evils. And you start to rationalize, and you start to say, well, maybe he's not really that bad. And some of the things I thought were distasteful, you know, maybe they're necessary these days in politics. And, and then three or six months later, the media is really being unfair. And anyway, the Democrats did it, were just as bad. And three or six months after that, it's, you know what, I think we need this kind of change. Because, you know, the, look what, change agent. what happened before that. And now he, and he seems to be sort of succeeding. And I mean, I generally dislike slippery slope metaphors. They're overused. But in this case, watching so many personal friends and acquaintances slide down this slippery slope from, let's say, December, January, December 2016, before the administration had begun, it wasn't crazy to think that maybe it would be better than we thought. Maybe he would sort of rise to the occasion. I think I lost that that thought pretty quickly, especially the day after, well, inauguration day and the day after when he went to the CIA. But still, even then, some people were hopeful. But watching people slide down the slope till now, people we all know, whom I, I think, at least in my case, I never would have expected, are writing articles, giving speeches, making donations, endorsing, and, and kind of full-throated support, not just of Trump, but of Trumpism, changing their views on foreign policy, all the issues that Kerry mentioned. They suddenly have decided that they were wrong. We were wrong for 70 years in upholding the international liberal order, and we need this kind of America first stuff. And this is true in other issues as well, and pro-immigration people, this is just walking away from that. I mean, that has been a real lesson for me. You know, I just had never really quite seen this personally, I think. The kind of the way in which one moves from grudging acceptance to full-throated endorsement, especially as the whole party's with him and as his, you know, he looks like he has a shot at getting reelected. So it looks like you're not necessarily on a sinking ship. So what's the choice? If you want to be on a ship, that's the ship you have to be yeah. on, et cetera. Trump. That, I mean, it's a, 
a really good point. And as a sort of inveterate critic, Democrat, I wouldn't have been expected to support him. I've had a sort a similar process where he first presented as a kind of buffoon to me, a dangerous buffoon, maybe at least in his own mind. And then he, he, you know, measures of, I don't know about success, but just this kind of acceptance. So, I mean, Peter mentioned something that nobody talks about anymore. I wonder whether it was uh, at all a central aspect of your own reflexive um, division from him. The guy lies every day. We take that as 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 a nothing burger now. It's not even mentioned. And yet, it seems to me in previous administration, you know, Clinton told one or two, and it was a huge deal, and understandably. But it's there the actual, the the incredible indifference to the truth, and that on any kind of bill of particulars against Trump is quite low, it seems to me. But I but I remember when I was first absorbing it, thinking like the sense of people's becoming uh, domesticated to that to that habit i found really unnerving well i was yeah. going to say i mean people do become domesticated to it but there are instances where you know there are crises national security crises in particular where it's important for the president to be able to say things to the country and to allies and be believed and back to our childhood the boy who cried wolf is a fable that lasted a long time because people really understand that if you constantly lie, then even when you tell the truth, people won't believe you. And I think even most of the president's supporters know that he lies a lot. I would think so. I mean, we're but they this... don't think it's that serious. Somehow. I mean, I think this yeah. is where the change of the political culture, as you say, from the kind of occasional lie, the shading of the campaign yeah. exaggeration, you campaign with exaggerations, but then you try to govern more responsibly, fine. The whole the culture of not just exaggeration and not just dissimulation, but just flat out lying, the degree to which that's utterly normalized is really shocking. And Gary Kasparov, the great mm-hmm. uh, Russian dissident, great chess champion, right. and human rights activist, I think maybe quoting though Havel or someone else like that. The point, no one, you're not supposed to believe the lies, but you're supposed to not believe that there is a truth, or you're supposed to sort of become just a kind of relativist. Well, that's the thing, right? And and that he's had a lot of success on. He's had a lot of success in our political culture. Who knows? I mean, you know, some people say this, and some people say this. Robert Mueller and his team have this 400-page report that says X, but some other guy on cable TV says Y. And I mean, I have this personally, again, I'm sure... You two do as well, Peter and Carrie. I mean, conversations with people where they're not really going to stake out the position that Mueller is a you know deep state agent who's making things up and all that. What they will stake out is master tactician. No, it's confusing. It's complicated. There's some good arguments on the other side, and who's to say? And so the degree to which he's succeeded, I don't know if this is a kind of weird genius of his or just he stumbled into it because he lies all the time. But he's succeeded in mudding the waters in a way that's uh, been unfortunately sort of successful. When I said successful, I don't mean he's been successful as president. No, 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 I understand. But I mean that in a certain way he hasn't paid the price we would have expected for all the kinds of failures in governance and failures of character that are so evident to us, I think. And for that as well, like, well, well, I'll just say one thing quick. Mudding the waters really is the apt metaphor as a former DOJ person, as a for the, you know, the aspect, the sort of stunning aspect of recasting Law enforcement and the FBI as, you know, the deep state jackbooted thugs. I, it's not the first time that, that uh, law enforcement has fallen into criticism, but you, you certainly chafe at it as a former Fed. And then again, I'm astonished under the current administration. I had first been very hopeful about Bill Barr, but no attempt to defend the, the extent to which really 
what I would have taken to be responsible members of the party have either been cowed or have somehow acquiesced to the um, the attitudes is really uh, alarming to me. Here's one of the areas where the lying that he does as a person, I think we need to be concerned is spilling into the instruments of government. So yes. one of the questions that you know we're all always asking is, are, and you mentioned this at the outset of the program, is are the institutions holding up? You know, is it okay that he tells a lie? however many times it is, nine times a day or whatever is the mm. latest statistic, is it okay that he tells a lie as long as the institutions hold up? And what I'm concerned about what we're seeing in the actual policymaking, and now we're starting to see this, I think, in DOJ litigation, is his use of pretextual reasons or made-up reasons for a particular policy that then are becoming defended as if they were legitimate by the instruments of government. So we could go back to the original travel ban, which was a Muslim ban, and they tried to implement it, and they wrote a shoddy executive order, and then through the process of going through some litigation, it got weeded back. But that was the original point of it. If we look at um, the emergency on the border, the use of emergency authorities on the border. It's a pretextual use of the emergency authority in order to achieve his political objective, which is money for the wall. We're seeing it now on the census issue play out where you have the president saying, tweeting, acknowledging that there's one reason for the question to be inserted. And now there's a, you know, how is the Justice Department going to actually defend that? And so when you start to have lawyers in government having to defend Things that the president is saying are reasons for policies that are pretextual. We're starting to see the sort of the institutional recognition of his lies being implemented. Right. Well, I mean, in a couple ways. First, we're seeing perhaps the um, the consequences come home to roost in what's happening. The census, I think, is a very good uh, example. But then within the department, Peter was the head of the, of the whole civil division. The most stunning and unprecedented aspect of that to me was they, they weren't simply removing one conscientious objector, but an entire uh, root and branch. Uh, they took it from federal programs to, an, to another, presumably because the entire structure up to up to high supervisory levels wouldn't countenance it. And now they've had to go in front of a court and basically say, "We're coming up with something. We'll tell you soon." Uh, you know, this it's an impossible position to be in. I wonder if you think you you do hear whispers. I hear more than whispers. I mean, from the people I know in DOJ, the real erosion of morale, the sense that, you know, you're not you're not wearing the the good guy hat anymore, the feeling that, you know, institutional interests that, that are really the the main kind of coin of the realm for the department attorney are are being are disintegrating. That's something you hear on a daily basis. You have people leaving, you have people really completely disconsolate about their work they used to feel very proud of. And that, if you trace that, that's like what? How, that's many steps from wanton kind of lies that a president might tell, but it, it, it infects now at, you know, at the real level of career attorneys in front of a court. Well, yes, and you know, Carrie's point about the reaction on the court side you know, is absolutely telling because, you know, in administrative law cases, and the census case is an administrative law case, you virtually never ask yourself as a court, 
what was the motive of the decision maker? Right. It's you look at the written record, the reasons. Especially if the what, decision maker is a government entity. That's right. There's a presumption of regularity, and it requires an extraordinary moment for a court to say, we're going to say the reason you articulated in your written papers we think was contrived and protectual and was not the real reason. And obviously that was an argument that was made in the travel ban case, but only two of the nine justices were willing to go there. It's also an argument that's being made in the congressional subpoena cases by the president's private lawyers when they say, oh, Congress doesn't have a legitimate purpose here because it's really political. And what the district court there said was, I'm not going to look at Congress's purposes. They've stated a plausible reason. That's as far as a court should go. And so the fact that five members of the court in the census case crossed crossed that line and said, we're going to talk about the motive of the decision maker, you know, it is a step that indicates a, a loss of credibility by the administration before the courts uh, that I think is unprecedented. I mean, I'd say this discussion for me brings on one thing I've noticed over the couple of years of this. People I know, so we've all been in government, you three in justice and uh, legal positions and me not a lawyer. Um, I'd say people I know who have been in government on the Republican and conservative side have been more hostile, generally speaking, to Trump than sort of academics right. who are just in favor of you know, cutting back the administrative state, which is fine with me, or in favor of, you know, lower, less government and market-based solutions and what other things they can talk themselves into thinking Trump is pursuing. And I do think that's because, if I had to guess, I think this discussion probably exemplifies that, we sort of maybe have a little more of a sense of how government works. And it's a little bit more fragile than people realize the norms and the habits and the institutions. And we're more alarmed by what's happening internally. If I've been very struck on the outside. We've used the word consequences here a couple of times. Outside, I have these arguments with friends and it's, well, what are the consequences? Mm-hmm. Economic growth is 2 3%. We're not at war. Get some pretty good justices, judges. Big picture, you know, this is all kind of inside baseball and some things that you find distasteful, Bill, or vulgar, or maybe there, he shouldn't do those things, but it can be fixed, you know, when he's out. And I think those friends of mine, I do think, wildly underestimate these consequences we're talking about, the consequences for democracy, for governance, for constitutionalism, for the rule of law, uh, as opposed to the sort of, I think eventually we'll pay a price in the real world of foreign policy. We already are. And same with economics and same with other things. But I'm very struck by that too. And I think it's one thing that has kept Trump's support higher. People like us look at it, we just can't believe it almost. But if you're out there, the economy's okay. We're not at war. America is a very strong country and society with very layered, deep institutions and civil society and in state and local government and in the federal government and in the private sector and the charitable sector and so forth. And so things are chugging along and it's not like the state of uh, Virginia isn't functioning as well as it was poorly, but mostly as well. As, as it, I used to use Virginia because I lived there. Carrie I know, and I lived so there. I. I used to live that, use that as an example of how things are it's okay. It's been a rough oh, year for Virginia rough, politics. Okay, the state of Ohio, Ohio or something. I don't know. But yeah, things function. And that, that does make it actually easier to tell yourself, well, the Trump stuff is kind of people like, you know, Keisler and Carrie and me, we're just too upset about some of the stuff that we find distasteful, but it's not kind of real. I think it's hard to bring home to people. I've thought about this a fair amount, you know, why they should be as alarmed as we are, because they haven't been as close to it as we are, frankly. Yeah, I mean, I think about this all the time, and I'm just befuddled would be a soft word, but I'm you know, deeply frustrated at what seems to be the indifference. I mean, you guys probably don't consider yourselves experts in this question, and you're not necessarily your party's keeper. But to the extent, you let's you know, just talk for a couple minutes. Why? Why are you um, relatively few? What, you know, what's the basic reason you think that these 
really elementary challenges to core values. I mean, I think in general, there's an incommensurateness of what's being weighed here, the, you know, when you try to get judges versus core American values. But, you know, your, your erstwhile colleagues, what's the basic reason why he's been successful? I mean, again, when I first encountered him, I was for that guy because I thought he was, I was a Democrat because, you know, he was going to get mowed down. Ha, ha, ha. But even election aside, what's your sense about the general quiescence of the party and especially, I guess you could say, um, elected representatives of the party? I'll say a word, then you guys. I mean, presidents are powerful. Presidents who win, uh, politicians who win the presidency, especially if their party's lost a couple of the, the last couple of times and four of the last six, are are very powerful. And then, as I say, nothing has gone so visible. Not that many things have gone so visibly wrong as to force congressmen and senators uh, to sort of break from him because you know the way they might if. I don't know if there were a recession or. Although war. you know them right there, are people behind, behind the scenes. I'm told. Sure. They don't talk to me. They they no no. But sure, they grumble they, about what a tyrant. They grumble about this and grumble about that. Like but then also yeah. he's powerful within the party, and once he realized that he could throw his weight around in primaries and intimidate people, the combination of intimidation, uh, go along, get along. Let's just suck it up. It'll be over in four years probably. And what's the point of being a martyr? I think it's a fair amount of that. They're elected officials. They're not like us, you know, who are right. supposed to stand up and make our statements. They, they've got things to do. To be fair, I'd say that on the more generous side to them, they've got, they, have, they are elected officials. They represent their constituents. They have important interests for the federal government. I don't mean this, not interest in a bad way, but I mean, actually, no. if you're the senator from Colorado, you have a million things you want to make a case for, for Coloradans, to the Interior Department, to the Agriculture Department, to the White House, and you want to have decent relations. If The whole point of having a president of your own party is that you're likely to have better luck than when there was a president of another party. People got elected in 2010, 2014. They were dealing with the Obama administration. They were very frustrated. Here's a chance to actually get policies. I mean, to be fair, they honestly right. believe would be good policies forward. And the, and the Trump administration has been pretty clever in that way, I would say. At the actual, my sense is, uh, you guys might have different, uh, better sense of this, at the operational level, they've been pretty good at sort of trying to help the congressmen and senators who, who have been helpful to them get some practical things done so that these people can sort of be very annoyed. How could he say that? Oh, my God, I'm getting critical questions from the press and the halls of the Congress and from my local editorial boards. But then I get to go out and say, but we got this decision on not a dam or something that's helped us. So I'm not excusing this, but I think this is a characteristic of elected officials. Well, let me, have, re- they let have me certain blind spots about the whole. They represent yeah. their state and their constituency, uh, and they're not thinking about the norms of the Justice Department. I mean, some of them should be. You'd yeah. think the chairman of the Judiciary Committee or something, but... Well, we might be at such a constitutional moment, but let, I mean, to refine it a little, my sense is that the elected leaders are really differently positioned from their constituents, and there is a, just more of a general, again, this is just, you know, armchair political analysis, but a general sort of indifference, economy's doing okay, etc. But, I mean, do you see the overall... Look, he's not he's not at seventy percent, but there's a certain stability to his base and 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 to the leadership. Do you see it as homegrown and responsive to the uh, electorate, or do you do you see the uh, electorate as as being uh, fundamentally motivated differently from the elected representatives? Does that make sense? It's a, might be it's it's not not your expertise. I mean, look at the end of the day, I would say this: he has support virtually unanimously within the Republican caucuses in Congress, 
because of job security concerns, because he can mobilize their primary voters against them, and we've seen that several times. So really the question is why does he have such support out there that gives him that power and leverage? And this is not my area of expertise, but I would say this, which is that some of the things that we so strongly disapprove of, I think I may have underestimated the degree of cynicism that most people hold about how everybody in political life they think acts. You know, when, when the Which president has was... way increased since he's been in office, by the way. Right? Yes, felt like, yeah. but he plays into that. So when, you know, just recently when he was being interviewed by George Stephanopoulos and he was asked if he would let the FBI know if he received opposition research or other help from a foreign power, he kind of screwed up his face like, what kind of an idiot are you? And he said, <laughs> said give me a break. Nobody does that. Or when he said you know, in trying to defend what he was pressing Jeff Sessions to do as attorney general to protect him, he said, you don't think Holder did that for Obama? So there is this appeal to this notion that I think is probably very current among most people that what we're seeing so visibly in him is not materially different from what all political leaders and all presidents do. And the thing is, it is. And I would just say, and the, the combination I just want to repeat of, the thing is that it, that's that's really how I, you know. How but the I combination of polarization and yeah. cynicism is very powerful. So yeah. the polarization leads you to want to rally to your side and against the other, and that seems to be the choice, combined with a general cynicism. And then he makes both even more prevalent or stronger. So it is a vicious yeah. cycle, right? I mean, you start off with that, but once he does, this is where I've always thought his being president is extremely important and bad, really, for the country. Because it's one thing to have this free-floating, a lot of polarization, free-floating cynicism, and a lot of that, but usually our presidents have slightly pushed against that. You know, they're not demagogues. They're willing to play partisan politics, but there's also a sense in which they try to rise above it a fair amount of the time. To have a president who himself is increasing the polarization, increasing the cynicism, as Peter said, we haven't really had that too, that often, and that is very dangerous. And it's one thing, again, to have a president who does that for two and a half years. It's another thing for four years. We haven't gone through a re-election campaign. What's, yeah. that, what's the country going to look like after three or six months of that kind of rhetoric? And it would be really another thing to have a president doing that for eight years. So that's where I think the strains on our institutions and really on the civic, on the body politic, get really serious. And do you think that there's an, a strain of, again, that we're, we're really outside of our element, but of nativism to what he's doing and to his um, appeal? Or, I, I, again, I, I'm, I'm puzzling over the, the particular entrenched um, uh, enthusiasm that the base has. And I don't think of this as certainly the better angels of the Republican Party, but here they are, really very solid. I tend to think that the economy is a big driver. And I think there's a difference in terms of the opposition or support of him if we talk about within the Beltway and Washington area versus um, a lot of other parts of the country. Can you elaborate? I think in a lot of other parts of the country, I think people are hurting. And they really believed that this was an accomplished business person who understood the economy and who mm-hmm. would make their lives better. And I, I really believe that there are a lot of people in the country who believed that and believed that that's how he would be president. I don't think people saw what I think others of us saw, which is that he's a con and that he's very good at marketing and his family is very good at marketing. That is a real skill that they have. 
but that in terms of his yeah. actual expertise of the economy and how to run it and and how to run a government he really has no idea and he hasn't learned much early on maybe he had some people serving in advisory capacities in the White House who were able to help him manage things a little bit or his first round of cabinet officials but he's blown through all of those knowledgeable competent people and now we're just left with what's left yeah. in terms of managing the government. So I think there's a difference between people who maybe within the Beltway have supported him for political sort of career reasons or political expediency if we're talking about um, members of Congress. I tend to think that people really do look to their representatives for leadership. And maybe that sounds quaint, but I think that people look to who is already their elected leadership and see what they're doing. And so I think the fact that so many elected leaders early on were unwilling to reject Trumpism and reject the direction that he was taking the party in terms of appealing to the racist side of things nationalist that you know sort of at the exclusion of of partnering with other countries or productive international relationships anti-globalist tariffs you know all these things that were not part of the republican party at all right and all of a sudden they are i think the fact that elected representatives did not push back on that sort of made people who are voters your everyday voters go along with it and say well if my elected representative is going along with it then then it must be okay right yeah and well so what about that when the history of this is written or now as we sit here where's mitch mcconnell i mean you know is how how big a uh you know a, a cause of the whole trump phenomenon is the the slumber of the party and especially the leaders of the party the people who in other crises you know you think of this arguably as as a constitutional failure in the sense that you know we're not we don't seem to be up to actually deploying the response that maybe the we were we were you know the framers left for us and i've thought about that for a few reasons uh, and why that might be but but i do come back frequently to the uh, to people who i feel certainly know better trump is a very interesting and odd psychological person but you know, McConnell and Lindsey Graham and all the, you know, what are they thinking? Do you, you know, do you have thoughts about that? Well, partisanship, I think, is Trump. Yeah. The favorites did not expect yeah. uh, uh, parties. They didn't expect well, that's, I mean, that's a big thing. Right? No, they huge. And even, and then we had right. political parties, and that was a reasonable thing to have, given the nature of modern democracies, I believe. But the parties we had had a complex, complex structure, and now they've been, over the last 20, 30, 40 years, so set presidentialized. Our whole, whole public discourse has been so presidentialized. Right. The parties themselves have become much more top-down, and then the primary system has increased the power of certain elements within both parties, I would say. And the combination of all that, I do think, has meant that ambition does not counteract ambition in the way that the founders quite expected. People don't have as much of an interest in standing up for Congress. I mean, when I got to Washington in 85, the stuff that Trump is routinely doing would have been met with and was met with opposition and really powerful opposition and successful opposition, and somewhat to our frustration in the, in the Reagan right. administration, uh, even from Republican senators and congressmen, right. not just from and, – and women, not just from uh, right. Democrats. Like this is against the and, DNA. You know, you, 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 some no appropriations DNA. committee, you know, subcommittee chair would have a heart attack if you were trying to move some money around, especially if you thought you were doing it for some not I – mean, we, we at the education department, we would literally move – I mean – 
eight million dollars from we would ask permission of the appropriations committee this is how it works you know if you're in between budgets, right? We used to have budgets then too, a real budget process. But anyway, uh, you know, from one research center to another, because literally this old research center didn't have the researchers anymore and the new one was doing important research on what helped kids learn. It was utterly unpolitical. It was based on a recommendation of a panel of experts. It was totally legit. Even so, you had to go to the Hill and make a case and they were suspicious and they, you know, Congress appropriates money. Uh, Mr. Secretary, they would tell my boss, Bill Bennett, you know, not you. And you'd, But then they would usually, if it was like that, sign off. It was something more political. Or if, if you were moving the research center from the home state or home district of, of, a, of a chairman or ranking member on the appropriations subcommittee, you wouldn't get signed off. I mean, there was a degree of interest in Congress uh, keeping its power. That which is, is self-interest, but was very important. I mean, if you ask me, the, I think the institutions yeah. of America have worked pretty well, honestly, over the last two and a half years. The one that's failed the you most. You would say that. Yes, yeah, but right. the one that's failed the most, well, Congress. the two that have failed the most are Congress and the Republican Party. And that's, and then obviously, those two are yeah. intimately uh, involved with each other. And that is, that is worrisome. And the point that, you know, I think just needs to be made is that what's at issue here are things that really should transcend politics and partisanship. Yes. The, uh, you know, if, it's hard to find any single incident that's a microcosm of what's wrong. But if I had to pick one, it was the story that the former Secretary of Homeland Security was warned that she really couldn't bring up with the president the issue of what steps needed to be taken to safeguard the election infrastructure against foreign interference or other types of attacks because he was incapable of hearing the subject without thinking of it as an attack on the legitimacy of his own election. So you have an area which is important, which would be very much helped by presidential leadership within the executive branch, but he's psychologically incapable or unwilling of seeing it in any terms other than extremely narrow narcissistic ones. And, you know, every president we've had, I think, including some very bad ones, including ones from both parties, you generally get the sense that they've understood that they're part of something bigger than themselves and that they're, they're stewards of institutions that stand for really deep values. And he doesn't convey that he even comprehends what that could be about or why anyone other than the biggest loser and sucker in the world would even think of something that way because life is just a personal quest for dominance, I think, in, in his perspective. And so to have someone as president who doesn't, as Carrie said, think in terms of the national interest, but thinks instead of his own personal interest in so many different ways that he cannot even listen to a presentation about the need to safeguard our election infrastructure, that is different from anything we've seen before. You know, that's extremely well said. I, it was, I, yeah. I would uh, uh, totally second that. And, you know, if you read that, speaking of the framers and the founders, they're more famous for Federalist 10 and 51 and ambition, counteraction, ambition. But if you actually read the papers, especially the papers 67, uh, 67 to 77 on the executive, there's an awful lot of thought that was given to the president and the pr- personally, to his personal character and judgment, because the founders were not foolish. And they knew that at the end of the day, if you're going to have one president and they very much believed in having only one president, a unitary executive, as we say these days, uh, that a lot depended on that president being 
a person of decent character, good judgment, quality. They care. This was the idea behind the Electoral College that quickly right. went away. The party establishments, in some ways, became you know a, a sort of more democratic echo, you might say, of the Electoral College, where presumably they'll, they'll put in they'll, the party bosses would try to make sure at least someone, not someone too irresponsible, got in there, not someone who's totally a narcissist. There were other checks within the system of and within the culture, I would say. But it, it's the it's it's hard. I mean, the, you can have all the institutional checks you want, all the balances, all the capable law cases being, you know, legal cases being brought against the president. But if you have a president who is, as, as you both said very well, genuinely just doesn't have any real concern for the national well-being or for institutions just beyond himself, uh, it's hard. That that has real the potential of doing real damage. I mean, somewhere in the in the ten, I don't know which one is an actual. Um, prospect of the people's coming to elect a celebrated figure, yeah. you know, which the equivalent of like a reality uh, TV star. No, but I think, uh, and explicitly, yeah. Hamilton says, but yeah. that that could happen at the state level. Yeah. Because, you know, the states are small and they're we, uh, subject to demagogy. We, we have this electoral college. Yeah. I mean, this is why the if a surprising percentage yeah. of the pages on the executive are about the electoral college. Which actually, they thought would control because most they, elections. Because they actually. thought it was extremely yeah. important. What's that about? That's not about the internal structure exactly of the executive or the veto or the you know, nomination of justices. It's, it's, it's about the actual character of the person who's going to become president. They knew that was something that would matter. And it is really striking. I mean, what everyone thinks of, the, as Peter said, of these American presidents, we have had presidents who were of mixed qualities in many ways. We have never really had a flat-out demagogue as president. We've had people use some demagogy to get to the presidency, who, who every Democratic politician does, I suppose, every politician does. But typically, as president, they haven't too much, let's just put it that way. We have a president who, who literally hasn't cut back at all. I mean, if anything, it's, it's even more yeah. than it used to be. And that's a rough experiment for a democracy to go through. A president, the most powerful person in the country, constantly demagoguing, constantly inciting, constantly dividing, constantly, constantly lying. lying. You know, and, and to pretend it's one thing to have a Joe McCarthy. He was a senator. He did a lot of damage for three or four years, but he's a senator, and he ended up getting overtaken by events and by his own party. George Wallace was a governor, a presidential candidate, won five states. That's very different from having an actual president of the United States. Yeah. Well, and this is the difference between 2016 and 2020. I mean, why in the world is this person going to be the nominee again? I mean, I'm because, you, and, you, because, because there were so many people. I mean, there were, there were plenty of people. Some of Peter are checks and balances colleagues, even who have you know formed it with us now, but who during the campaign held out hope that uh, despite his inexperience in government, that once he got in office, he would uh, a surround himself with knowledgeable and experienced mm-hmm. advisors, and b rise to the role and understand the gravity of the importance of the institutional role of president. He's done neither. And he's done all of the other things that we've seen now, continues to lie, according to the Mueller report, has engaged in anywhere from four to six to ten evidence-based acts of obstruction of justice. And yet this is going to be the nominee again? I mean, how is that even possible? Um, In fact, so I I thought that the very last um, uh, consideration or discussion would be forward-looking in this way. So I started our discussion with a kind of counterpoint to where you might be and where some friends might actually occupy. Let me try to end things with a uh, checks and balances, Republicans for the rule of law on steroids. You know, take it to the other side and say, let's say he's reelected and it's 2024. What are the prospects for 
historians actually marking the Trump administration as a time when the American Republic took sort of a giant step, you know, where a kind of failure began and we became more like a Turkey or a Greece, you know, whatever you want to say, but something that's, that where obviously the failure of institutions have led to a kind of reconfiguration ongoing of the republic. Now, that's a very grim prognosis. Maybe you don't want to go that far. But, you know, what are your what are your thoughts about, you know, even the, the putting it in its sort of darkest terms? I mean, eight years is much more dangerous than four years. We know that for eight presidents who are reelected have a kind of impact on American history that one term presidents don't. And in this particular case, given everything he's done, as Carrie suggested, I think it would be pretty startling. Not, I mean, it's very disappointing that he could be renominated, but it would be pretty startling and and worrisome if he were reelected. I think what he would the damage that could be done to the international order would at first be greater almost than to the domestic order right. because you it's more fragile. It. Yeah. And because I've talked personally to foreign leaders and ambassadors and so forth, you know, four years we're kind of going to work this out. We're <laughs> going to work around him. We'll we'll be nice to him. Uh, you know, we'll figure out how to keep the alliance structure together despite him. You can do that for four years. Eight years, not so much. And eight years, you start to think to yourself, well, where is the American public on this, incidentally? So I mean, it's not as if we can count on you know, things coming back to, quote, normalcy. The other dark thing, if we're going to close on a dark note, I would say is he could lose uh, the next Democratic administration if it were Democratic. I mean, I mean presumably Democratic Party administration would, you know, could easily have troubles. I don't know, maybe there'll be a recession you know, that finally will hit or some of these will pay a price or some of these foreign policy challenges. Uh, then I'm not confident. I will work hard for this, but I'm not confident the Republican Party comes back to normalcy at that point. Who knows if it doesn't go in a Trumpier? Right. The problem with Trump is that he was kind of a feckless, you know, uh, authoritarian nativist, and what we need is a much more hard-nosed one. You know, that there are historical examples of that actually. So I, I think there's a lot to worry about. Ultimately, I'm not uh, despairing, but there's a lot to worry about in terms of the the health of the system here, whether he wins or loses. Though I think much more, particularly if he wins. Well, I'm not willing to entertain yet what sort of the the post-2020 second term Trump administration is, because I think so much of the work of anyone on uh, of any political persuasion, um, no matter what party people affiliate with, the goal should be over the next 18 months to stand up for rule of law issues, continue to say that it's not okay for the president to attack judges, verbally attack judges, go after prosecutors, try to influence prosecutions, obstruct justice. I mean, all of these things are not okay. And so I am hopeful that there, those who are not on the extremes of the political process will not prevail in 2020. And that the bulk of America, which I think does want a values-based foreign policy, a steady hand on the economy, respect for our judges and our prosecutors and our system of justice, that that will prevail somehow in the middle. But we'll see. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with all of that. And, you know, Harry, you've, you've asked a lot about history and how it will look back. I mean, I think if the president is repudiated at the polls in the next election, then there will be an opportunity for there to be an understanding and a narrative that he was repudiated because of among other things, some of the things that we've been talking about, and that could create an opportunity to reestablish and reaffirm uh, some norms. Uh, If he is not repudiated, you know, people develop their understandings of what's appropriate and what's acceptable 
a lot by just looking around them and seeing what cues the larger culture gives them. And um, if he gets reelected, that would be a big, big cue in the wrong direction. This has been a really great discussion. Uh, Bill, Carrie, Peter, thank you very much for, for coming and for engaging in, and I might say for all the, the work you're doing and continue to do. Would you join me, please, in thanking our panel? Thank you. So you've talked about how Trump is the candidate again. Is there even the slightest possibility that another Republican candidate could become the Republican candidate in 2020? And if so, like, how would that even happen? So there will be a challenger to Trump, at least one, I think more than one. And we've all, some of us have been working hard on this and a little disappointing so far and a couple of people choosing not to run. But we'll see how serious the challenges are, or how much they are more nuisance challengers. But nuisances can still be nuisances and, and useful in framing certain issues. I mean, you know, the way he would have to be defeated would be doesn't happen that often in modern American politics. It has happened in the past. Uh, Lyndon Johnson wanted to be reelected president and renominated by the Democrats and wasn't and had to withdrew from the race in 68. I think you'd probably need, honestly, though, you know, an external shock to the system, a manifest failure. The trouble right now is people can tell themselves too easily, as we've been saying, you know, the economy's okay, no obvious, no wars. Uh, so, you know, what's the huge, huge crisis here? You know, I think we can, I think a challenger would get more votes than people think, but not enough to win the nomination. So if the economy slowed down, I do think the economy is just a huge wind under Trump's uh, uh, sails or, or wings or whatever the metaphor is. I mean, not for, there is a hardcore Trump base, and that's what the media is most interested in. But Kerry was sort of touching on this. But there are a lot of reluctant Trump supporters. There are a lot of people who don't like him. They kind of suspect he's doing some of the damage we've been talking about. But, you know, what's the alternative? And the Democrats are, look like they might go left, and they're terrible, to, even worse. And so maybe we'll just have to suck it up and accept him. A lot of that is based on the economy being pretty good. Um, and I do think if, if we hit a recession, which we might, there's still a business cycle, presumably, then suddenly all that rationalization maybe gets a little less strong and people get a little more alert to the other problems. You know, we joke always, I mean, joke, but, you know, it's a famous cliche, the, you know, the trains run on time. Right, right. Under Mussolini, the trains run on time. I went back and looked at this for five minutes, so I, don't, I think I'm right, right about right this. It was important to the success of Mussolini, I mean, in the real world in the 20s, you know, in fascist Italy, that it did work pretty well. I mean, who knows if it really worked well, but it seemed to work well. And it was really important for the Germans under Hitler, not to use the Hitler uh, comparison, which I don't like, which we've managed to avoid so far, but that his economy did better in the 34, 35, 36 than America and Britain. And so fascism had a certain kind of, you know, com- oh, not, common not just Weimar. It did better than the no, U.S. economy. No, Weimar was terrible. But the, yes, because they had a huge, Can- I mean, weirdly, yeah. a huge Keynesian. It's like a Keynesian thing, no, they right? They did. Yeah, it was like, were, yeah, weirdly, like, you know, yeah, they were building public, a lot works. Of public works, armaments, you know, yeah. all the stuff that ke- took us out of the recession in 39, Free, free labor. So, I mean, one doesn't want to even, like, joke about this. But it is, all I'm saying is that it is, he's been helped a lot by, by the economy. And if you had a recession, I think is the one thing, or, you know, some terrible foreign policy crisis, which none of us is rooting for, would be probably necessary to really, like Johnson. I mean, think of that metaphor, that analogy, to really deny him. Or maybe things spinning out of control so much here, him seeming so manifestly out of control, that people just kind of get horrified by it. But I don't know if Carrie's shaking her head. I mean, we've, we've seen an awful lot of out of control behavior that people have managed to not be as horrified as they should be. Tweeting about nuclear weapons. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have a question. Your producer has a question. Um, so 
the Republican Party of my youth was very much a national security focused party. And now there seems to be it seems like we have a national security threat in the White House. Right. So let alone any decisions or any uh, cooperation with a foreign party. How about just the ability to be influenced by your previous misdeeds as a national security threat? You know, like there's many, many people that weren't able to fill out their paperwork. Right. So to get the right amount of clearance. So what are we talking about in terms of a party that was so focused on the rule of law and so focused on security, just turning an eye and saying, meh? Well, I think that's been certainly a surprise to many who work in national security. I mean, I think most most voters in the country are, are not necessarily making their voting decision based on national security issues. That's a smaller subset of people. But... Um, Within the professional national security community in in Washington, there's been a huge surprise at the shift of uh, at least where Trump has taken Republican Party positions as it relates to world affairs and foreign policy and American first and nationalism and, as I said, what I view as a, as a values-free foreign policy – um, that's been a change, and so there's that. I think that's one of the reasons why the national security community, uh, the re- the Republican part of the national security security community, has been some of the most outspoken. Um, in addition to lawyers, people who have worked in the justice system have worked in the Justice Department. I mean, it's not an accident that those of us who have worked in either, or for my part, both of those worlds, um, and, and Peter as well, have are, are some of the most vocal opponents to Trumpism. I would also say that I think the Republican Party of our youth um, was unified on foreign policy by opposition to the Soviet Union and communism. And uh, that may have papered over some of the fractures that may have always existed with some strong elements of isolationism and what the president calls America firstism, which isn't obviously new to him. And so I think to some extent, uh, in the post-Soviet world, there was a lot more room for those inherent differences to come to the surface. So um, everyone kind of talks about Trump's persona, and, and you know, that could be harmful to the, the, the social climate or the political climate, versus Trump's actual policies or you know, the, the judges installed uh, you know, through, through the Trump administration. And so my question would be, how do we go about, you know, as attorneys or people with political knowledge, um, I mean, that's one thing, right? But how do we go about explaining that to the general public, uh, the distinction there, the distinction that, you know, Trump's politics and the, the, the institutional harm that could be caused by the, the norms that are being, or the, the, um, the, I guess, the behavior that's being normalized by the administration? Yeah, I mean, I, people can, turns out, can tune out a lot of things if they want to. And, if, and I do think the degree to which Trump has corrupted public opinion to some degree. I mean, people didn't vote for Trump necessarily for terrible reasons. They felt, you know, they had wage stagnation. They felt that the elites were out of touch. The party seemed to be giving them Jeb Bush. The Democrats gave them Hillary Clinton. It was like, oh, my God, we want change. and We're going to get another Bush and another Clinton and so forth. But but then they do have also resentments and prejudices, honestly, and we all do, I suppose. And if a president seems to legitimize, harp on them and legitimize them and use them as explanations for why people are unhappy with other things, then people sort of start to enjoy uh, indulging their prejudices. I do think that's one of the most worrisome things that Trump has done. I mean, people have made this point that the, the cruelty is not a bug, it's a feature in some respect. And it's liberating 
People like it. It's fun to go to the Trump, I gather from people who do, to go to the Trump rallies and say things that you kind of didn't think you were supposed to say. You sort of half thought them, but you wouldn't say it in polite company. Maybe you wouldn't say it in any company, incidentally, three years ago. Maybe you didn't really think it three years ago, but you sort of thought you shouldn't think it. But that's how the world works. People then decide, okay, you know what? I, this prejudice seems like it's legit to say. The president of the United States is sort of saying it. We're chanting it together at the rallies. Lock them up. I mean, the degree to which, so people are complicated and the people who say, well, that was always there in the Republican Party. It was under the surface. Us. It was well, yeah, of course. It's that's always there in people. Period. In some respects, uh, and some of it was there more strongly in one party, some in another. But once it's sort of legitimized and rewarded in some ways, and seems like it's the wave of the future, it can get very um, in, in, sort of enticing to people. So I think that's it's the flip side of your question, which is why the resistance to, geez, this is America, and we're separating parents and children at the border and these children are being kept in terrible conditions and like no one thinks we should just that this is just terrible regardless of your position on ultimately on asylum policy or refugee policy or immigration policy and arm in arm with this brutal horrible north korean dictator again regardless of whether ultimately you're an interventionist or a non-interventionist or you want a very values-based or only moderately values-based foreign policy this is like unbelievable that he's saying these things about kim but somehow that stuff just slides off, it seems like, compared to people having a chance to indulge their, I don't know what exactly, anxieties and prejudices. And I would say, this is where I come back to the economy, though, and doing so in a way that's cost-free. It's one thing, I think if people would think twice, if the price, so to speak, of uh, indulging in a politics of anxiety and prejudice and a certain amount of bigotry and so forth, the price of that was like, geez, suddenly the standard of living is collapsing, you know? But that hasn't really happened yet. So they get the best of all worlds. They get to be totally irresponsible and, and sort of uh, indulge, enjoy the demagogic politics in which we're now living without paying much of a price because enough of the responsible politics still exists that it keeps things on course. They're not actually pulled over by secret police at 2 a.m. and taken away. You know, that would sort of wake you up pretty quickly to the, as to the dangers of this kind of politics. Thank you very much to Bill, Peter, and Carrie. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com whether it's for five words or fewer or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jenny Josephson, Dave Moldovan, Anthony Lamos, and Rebecca Lopatin. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum, Michelle Beaulieu, and Courtney Columbus. Technical assistance by Richard Gunther and Andy and Holly Klubach. Thanks, as always, to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.